Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab Bintunis, joined by my co-host, Irtaza Hassan, and our return guest, Imam Tom Fakini. Imam Tom accepted Islam in his early 20s. He holds a BA in political science from Vassar College and a BA in Islamic law from Islamic University of Medina. He also holds a chaplaincy certificate from the chaplaincy program conducted by the Prophet's Mosque. Imam Tom is currently the Imam and Director of Religious Affairs of Utica Masjid in New York, as well as the Imam of Hamilton College, where he does part-time chaplaincy work. And he also teaches tafsir to middle schoolers online through Legacy International Online High School. Now, in our first episode with Imam Tom, we talked about masculine modesty in Islam, with a particular bent to the spiritual foundations of haya, and how haya is to inform our framework as Muslims, and especially for Muslim men. On today's episode, we're going to dive a lot more into the nitty-gritty. Everything from shirtless gym, gym selfies to TikTok dances, locker room talk, and more. So, welcome back to the show, Imam Tom. And alhamdulillah, brother, Irtaza, really glad to have you on this episode, too. Thank you so much. It's a, a pleasure to be back. Great to be here with you all. So, I'm going to start off just with the, the first big foundational question that has been asked so many times, especially in recent times with, again, social media, especially. Like, what is the male aura and how do you define aura in the first place? Bismillah, So, I'm going to just make a brief intervention in the way that we think about these things. And because a lot of times when we talk about these things, we talk about them from a legalistic point of view. Okay. And that's cool. Listen, I mean, my degree is in Sharia. Like I love <laughs> the legal, if anybody in the room loves legalism, it's me, but, but there's a dawah drawback to looking at it through that view. And what is that? That's that most people, they're not theologically positioned to accept. If I just sit here and tell people this is haram, this is halal. A lot of people, it's not going to make any difference in their lives. So one thing that I've kind of reflected on is trying to look at the theological aspect of things, okay? Like, what does it mean to your devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you do this act or that act or that or that thing, right? Because that deals with people at the level of motivation, right? There's kind of like information versus motivation. Are most people, let's say, not doing best practices or even falling into sin because they don't have the proper information? Or is the reason really that they don't really care to go above and beyond or they don't care enough, they don't have the proper motivation to exert themselves in pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My experience, and I could be wrong, is that it's the latter. That when it comes to aura or intermingling or the various sorts of things that we have, like information's out there. You know what I mean? Like people have been talking about this for a long time. And there are differences between the ulama, right? About exactly is there is there like the aura mughallada, right? It was like the extreme aura, and then there's the muhaffafa, right? There's like the the aura that's less than that that might be appropriate around certain people, and that's kind of into the weeds. That's kind of like the weeds that we enter into if we have a legalistic discussion about it. Because if I start to say, well, the aura is this. It's from the navel to the knee, and then this, and then, you know, the Shafi'i come back and say, actually, you know, like the extreme aura is just like, you know, the actual private parts and et cetera, et cetera. Now we're in the weeds. You're going to find your scholars. I have my scholars. You have your evidence. I have my evidence. I want to intervene with people in their relationship at the level of their relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I put it like this. If you have a lot riding on something, whether it's a test Imagine it's like your your final project or your thesis, right, for college. Or if it's a particular investment, let's say you've been, you know, involved in stocks or Bitcoin or something like that. How certain, what's the, the open-ended question, what's the degree of certainty that you want to have that this is a safe bet or that you've prepared enough for the test, right? Most people wouldn't be content with just like winging it and having a low degree of certainty. They would want to go to the extent that they're fairly confident 
that they're going to pass the test or get an A on the test or that they're going to get some sort of return on their investment. Okay. So the problem is that we're not looking at our spiritual practice the same way, right? If we're, if we're just hanging around the auto discussion of it's like, well, okay, somebody posted a pic of their, their chest on, (laughs) on Instagram or whatever, after they've been working out. Okay. What is this person's relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looking like? Is Allah even a concern in this person's internal calculus as to what they post on social media in the first place, right? Who are they showing off for? Who should they be showing off for? Should they be showing off at all, right? All these sorts of things. So it's like, I, I you know, I, I hate to reroute your question. That's like, a, a, I don't mean to be a stinker about it. That's what a lot of people do. And it can be frustrating. Imam Tom, if I could um, jump in here for a moment. It, uh, being from Houston, I'd, I'd like to share that we grew up in the 80s and 90s with a, a Muslim athlete, Hakeem Olajuwon, very well-known and beloved figure, basketball great. And even as being a kid, I remember he had, Olajuwon later in his career had started to become much more practicing and devout in his Islam. And it was very publicly known. And he requested the Rockets for a separate shower. And this is back when it was unheard of in athletes, you know, essentially locker rooms are together, showers are together. And that's just kind of the culture. And I know that in this generation, just myself being 43 and being an active dad with other Muslim dads, a lot of our kids play sports, whether it's basketball or baseball. We actually teach our kids about you know, even going into the locker rooms or, or finding an alternate. A lot of facilities will give you a, a private bathroom or they'll let you use something else because this is such an issue in sports as well. But I wanted to ask you on the topic you were just saying, yes, you can get into all sorts of probably fiki understandings and, and fatwas. But I think also what Sister Zainab was saying, just as, as a general understanding of Oda when it's men amongst other men, I think also some of this uh, this difference of opinion probably comes from the Hadith of Uthman, if I'm not mistaken. I, I don't know if you had any comments on that. Again, I'm talking about when it's just brothers around brothers, kind of what could be a healthy parameter, especially in a Western context, you know, showing your knee, maybe showing part of your lower thigh, uh, if you had any any advice on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like the paradigm of Uthman and also Abu Huraira, like when he made wudu. When Abu Huraira would make wudu, he would make wudu up until his shoulders, right? And uh, uh, he was told by the Prophet that he's going to be rewarded for that, that he's going to see that the extent to which you made wudu is the extent to which, you know, it will be like shining like on the on the Day of Judgment in the afterlife. So, and with Earthman and, and his sort of, as the, the paragon of sort of modesty, right? And I think I, I completely agree. It's like, those are the sorts of, conversations that we should be talking about where is the general culture at uh, how can we push back against it right masculine male modesty masculine mos- modesty is really not even a thing <laughs> right to be frank in western society and so this is very much part of our tradition it's part of divine guidance and prophetic guidance and so how do we make it a thing we've had a lot of interesting inroads it's glad that you brought up hakim Olajuwon and athletes because folks like athletes bear a tremendous amount of responsibility for breaking the mold, right? Like we see how Muhammad Salah, like making sujood after scoring a goal, has influenced how many thousands or tens of thousands of of young boys to do the same. Or, you know, the Moroccan national soccer team that we recently saw, or you have Habib, right, in MMA and UFC. Like we have so many sort of examples. And when that kind of breaks the mold, it really paves the way for other people to sort of follow in their wake. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely it. I mean, like we need to start demanding <laughs> accommodations and kind of like being confident enough in our not just like the letter of the law tradition, like this is the Oda I can't show from my knee to my navel, for example, even men. Right. Or if that's what I want to go with, but also just the general ethos of like I don't being uncovered is usually a sign of of sort of humiliation. Right. And I want to be seen with dignity in front of other people. And so uh, when it comes to the locker room or school or any sort of situation like that, that, yeah, these are things that are totally reasonable demands. And actually the demands that we make today are going to unlock a lot of possibilities for people downstream that come after us. I want to backtrack just really quickly because both uh, Brother Issa and you, Imam Ta mentioned the hadith of Uthman al-Dan. But 
for our listeners who don't know what we're referring to, could you just explain a little more in detail? Like, why are we talking about Uthman as the paragon of modesty, of masculine modesty in particular? Brother Itzazah brought it up, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass to him. Go ahead. Well, essentially, um, and uh, Imam Tom could give some, maybe some commentary on it, but but the hadith as we know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, is that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ was in the company, and, and I, I think it was Aisha Radhan who asked the question where Abu Bakr Radhan who and, and Umar Radhan who had stopped by, and the Prophet was, was leaning or laying in a way where part of his knee or the even the upper part of his knee was, was showing or was displayed. But when Uthman entered, or when he realized Uthman Radhan who was entering, he sat up in a way that he covered that part of the knee, or or maybe even some part of the upper knee was showing. And so uh, she asked; she was just in in a way inquisitive or or surprised at why why the change or or why the covering when Uthman came in. And and I believe uh, again, Imam Tom can correct me, but it was something like, "Should we not be shy to the one to the that the angels are shy to?" So. I guess it leads the question on number one, what we could understand from it, not just about the virtues of Uthman or the character and modesty of Uthman, but how could we apply it in a modern context? And I think this is where Imam Tom was getting into different ulama are going to come with different conclusions respectfully, and they're going to have different parameters for what is aura and, and what can be shown, what what should not be shown. So I think Imam Tom, if I'm, if I'm understanding correct, that's kind of where you were going with different people are going to es- essentially come to their own conclusions based on these different type of narrations. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And that's why I think like the game changer is like, let's have a shift from, th- from trying to be accepted in the society to trying to change and contribute to society. I think that's like a real big, like meta paradigmatic sort of shift, because if we're just concerned about fitting in and being accepted, then we're going to, whatever it is, whether it's modesty, whether it's gender relations, whether it's whatever nonsense is going on, we're just going to find a way to interact with our tradition that's going to justify it. And that's really problematic, right? Dude, we want to have the attitude of pushing back and actually contributing and uplifting and improving the society that we find ourselves in a society that considers it normal that men would all shower in the same sort of like locker room. Okay, just like in, in Meccan society, right? They were making tawaf around the Kaaba, like naked and drunk, right? Before Islam came. So our response is we can't settle for just what we've been given. We actually need to push it and to try to change it and contribute and actually uplift and make it better. And so that changes the way that we interact with our own tradition. Now we're looking at the Hadith of Uthman in a different way as like as not something to be like, oh, well, that's not wajib, right? And so I don't have to do it, right? It's not haram. Like I'm not doing anything haram. Right? That's the the sort of responses that you're going to get if you go to the kind of the, down the legalist avenue first, as opposed to every single one of us has an, an a general obligation and definitely a responsibility to try to leave the society that we're in better than it was as we found it. And so, what are the various avenues that we have to do that? Male modesty is definitely there as something that needs to be changed, right? Being able to you know, have more dignity and have more sort of just respect for the human body, right? And protecting sort of the things that we look at, not falling into desensitization or even dehumanization, right? Not treating the body as just mere atoms and flesh, but actually as the vessel of something spiritual and something greater. This is where we should try to push. And this is sort of, I think, our goal. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned just a short uh, a few moments ago, um, that being uncovered has traditionally been a sign of humiliation. Now, it's fascinating to me because now, especially in the West, it is the opposite. And it's for men as well as women. You flaunt what you have. And covering yourself is a sign of shame or embarrassment. And if you're confident, you're going to show off what you have. And this is very... um, prevalent especially with younger men i found and cultures of younger men whether it's in athletes where again you have uh, mma fighters and others who they literally just wear shorts that usually don't go down to their knees they're showing off the muscles that they have more and more brothers are definitely out there posting gym selfies on instagram and it's seen as a sense of pride and uh, interestingly enough i've seen some arguments that I consider very flimsy, which is like, oh yeah, you know, we're we're showing off our muscles to scare the kafat. And let's be real, that's that's not it. It really isn't it. But yeah, just you know, what are your comments on 
this this shift, this cultural shift that Muslims have adopted as well, where to be a strong man, you got to show it off. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, everybody has to be real. We're not insulated from the effects of the society around us and where it's moving. And so that's actually the where we get the urgency to want to change it from. Uh, if we don't change it, guess what? It's going to change us. And so there's a lot of different sort of vectors that are at play here. One of them is commodification of the self, right? The commodification of the human body, right? I was you know putting together some slides for a presentation the other week, and there was like this guy who he rented out or he he sold real estate on his body for advertising. So he'd actually get tattoos to advertise for different companies. And so we look at it, we're like, that's insane. But then we also have to think, well, why didn't anybody ever think of this before? And there's sort of social sort of movements and developments that are responsible for this. And one of them is this idea of commodification, that everything becomes bought and sold. Everything's up for buying and selling. Now you might think, okay, well, that's like a really silly and extreme example and nobody would do that. But there's a different, a parallel sort of commodification that's going on where the exchange is not through dollars and cents, but it's through likes and shares, right? The whole social media is kind of set up as a commodity exchange in that sort of way. And so if somebody puts out a lecture or they put out a talk or they put out, you know, a reflection and they get a sort of certain amount of interaction with it, right? That interaction is kind of the measure or how we, what we use, the metrics we use to measure uh, how impactful it was, right? Or how inspiring it was. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, if we are putting up pictures of flesh, we're putting up pictures of the body, it's being measured, right? It's being commodified by how many sort of likes and views and shares it, it, it's getting. And so what are the things that we're trying to put out there, right? Is that the, me is that the, is that the reaction of the people who are liking it and hearting it and sharing it? Is that, wow, the kufar trembling? That's like, definitely not. Like that's, as you said, extremely flimsy. It has to do with something else entirely, which is this idea that I, in order to be an influencer, I have to have a certain sort of positive image. And I guess the shortcut to reaching people isn't necessarily through their hearts or their minds, but through their eyes and through their vanity or through their sense of celebrity. So that's just one thread. And there's other threads that are responsible for this way of relating to the self where we commodify ourselves and we put ourselves out there like a pound of meat to be bought and sold, or in this case, to be liked and shared. And it's really degrading, honestly. It is really degrading. And I, I'm not convinced that the people who do this are actually happy. I think they're very quite restless and unsatisfied, and they're trying to fill a void. Uh, and that's actually what is the motivation behind these sorts of things. I think it's worth noticing and mentioning uh, specifically that even traditionally within fiqhi discussions and so on and so forth, there has always been that encouragement for men to be covered and not just the navel to the knees, but for example, madhabi discussions, I think it's the Hanafis in particular who are very particular about you know wearing something on, even on the head when praying, covering the shoulders when praying. And we don't, outside of maybe, if unless you come from South Asian background, uh, culturally and family tends to be more traditional, I don't really hear about these discussions when they come up in the context of speaking on masculine haya and how it's so embedded in our tradition. And maybe you can elaborate a little more on these, again, the fiqhi discussions of what's appropriate dress for men. I mean, we have things like, you know, skinny jeans are popular and shorts that go above the knee for guys. And as you already said, you know, there will be scholars who differ a little bit on these details. But what is the holistic picture that we get even from that overall scholarly discussion on male aura and appropriate dress code for men? Let's hit it, hit it from another angle even. The Prophet ﷺ prohibited libas al-shuhra, right, in the hadith, which is like basically, uh, and we, we were taught this hadith in, in the kulia in the uh, Islamic University. It was like anything, right? anything that kind of like causes people to notice you or like, maybe notice is, is understated. Maybe it's like head turning, right? Anything that's going to get people to look at you. And uh, that is honestly describes a lot of the way that guys dress today. Somebody is wearing tiny tank top and he's got the guns out. It's like, are people going to turn their heads and, and look, or is it likely or possible? Yeah, it definitely is. And so that's coming at it from a, another angle. You're not the, the purpose of 
the way in which you cover your body. And again, I think it is important to reconceptualize the body as the vessel of the soul, right? That kind of puts you already on different ground when we're thinking about how to, what we should, how we should be interacting with it and how we should be covering it or when we should be not covering it, right? Then it's not supposed to be flashy. It's not supposed to be attracting attention. That's kind of like a blanket sort of discouragement against attracting any attention. So what about sexual attention, right? What about attention that is specifically of a lustful or attractive nature? Then min babil awla, right? It's like then even more deserving of something that should be discouraged if not if not prohibited. You mentioned the overall attention grabbing dressing and then you specifically mentioned the sexual attraction too, which is where I want to go with my next question because this is a huge one that a lot of women actually uh, end up asking. And they say, you know, how do you explain the fact that male aura is just navel to the knee in public, even though women find men physically attractive as well. And that's where like the, the gym selfies come in, right? And the shirtless pictures and all of that. And they're so popular. And what, what is it really doing? It's not just guys showing off for other guys. It's, it's thirst trapping, essentially. So how do you explain this when, you know, we know that the aura of a woman is pretty much everything except hands and face, right? And, and feet if you're Hanafi, whereas it's like the opposite for men. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And that's something that really needs to be dealt with in a systematic way, okay? Because there is an asymmetry in how attraction works between men and women, okay? Now, that, that doesn't mean it's exhaustive and it, and it sort of doesn't necessarily account for every single phenomenon of male attraction that we see. But there certainly is a general thrust and it's differential, right? They're like male attraction and female attraction work a little bit differently, which is, and I'll give two examples of this. Commercials, okay? A shaving cream, luxury resorts, right? Vacation spots, whatever. What body are they using to sell their product? Is it the male body or the female body? Obviously. Right. The female body has always been a popular point of advertisement. Yeah, it's disproportional, right? It's completely disproportionate, right? If male and female attraction were the same, then we would expect there to be like some big beefy dudes or whatever, you know, like with their, their calves exposed or whatever, selling something or other. But that's usually not what we find. We find that the female body is is used and abused when it comes to commercialization, commodification, marketing, these sorts of things. Despite the fact that males are not the only people that are buying things, right? It's like like males and females, they're both, especially these days, <laughs> that's a whole other discussion we don't want to get into, but it's like they are fairly like approaching equal or at least definitely not as asymmetrical as it used to be when it comes to who's the one who's buying, who's the one who has the purchasing power, things like that. And yet marketing is still this way. Why? Because men are disproportionately affected by that type of advertising than women are. If women were as affected as men by that type of advertising, then we would see the same amount of advertising on the other side. Um, that's not to say that every single woman is the same. That's not to say that women aren't affected in some matter. Like, there's all these sorts of things on social media where you see like police units, right? Like like certain such and such police departments have started posting like thirst trap pictures of their own like police officers. And you'll go, yeah, I'm sure you're aware of this. And it's like, you'll go into the comments and see all the, all the comments of women and stuff like that. So, oh, you can arrest me anytime you want, all this sort of nonsense, right? So it's not to say that that doesn't exist. Of course it exists. And female attraction is there in that sort of way towards men, which is why we are having this conversation that males need to cover up more and do better anyway. But there is an asymmetry. And that's even reflected in the Quranic verses that deal with these sorts of things, right? Because Allah says, Surah Nur, right? He says, avert your gaze, protect your private parts for the men. And then he says to the women, you know, avert your gaze, protect your private parts. And then he has some other instructions as well, right? Draw down your garment, your head garments over your chest and et cetera, et cetera. So there is an asymmetry when it comes to, maybe we could say visual attraction, right? It's like men are sort of, are, are particularly impacted by visuals when it comes to attraction. And we're particularly vulnerable and susceptible to that. But both sexes are vulnerable to that, like writ large, definitely. So I, just touching on your sort of part of the question, like why the asymmetry? It's due to the reality. Islam is practical. The Sharia is pragmatic. There is an asymmetry. And I think, okay, yeah, I'll, I had another example, but I don't think I'll go there. So we can see in the popular culture, there's enough in the popular culture to demonstrate there that there is an asymmetry when it comes to how male attraction and female attraction works. You know, the other example I was, I was thinking of was about like sugar daddies versus sugar mamas, right? It's like, you'll find yeah. Okay. So you, you get what I'm saying here. It's like, 
you'll find that women maybe are oh boy, I don't even know how to how to how to break it down, but they are maybe more capable of tolerating poor looks, right? If a man has status and wealth, then women then excuse me, then men necessarily are perhaps. But we see much more the phenomenon of sort of sugar daddies than than sugar mamas, right? For example, so that would indicate a certain again asymmetry about health. It ties to the trend, historically speaking, of I don't say like women using their looks for financial stability, but it's it was considered their one commodity that even if a woman is quote unquote you know low social social economic status, um, or she's very poor, times of crisis, what does she have left? She's got her body to use, right? And just a personal quick reflection on this before we move on a, a little bit more, it can also be very much tied to the fact that. A lot of men will find themselves physically attracted even to something that's not considered quote unquote like prime beauty, right? Like we have, particularly in the West, there is very hyper exaggerated beauty standards, but that doesn't mean every woman walking around meets those standards. And that doesn't necessarily impact whether or not a man is going to be attracted to whichever woman he comes across anyways. And perhaps to some extent also that women do bear a higher cost in pursuing just anybody or anything that they find attractive. So just a couple minor factors that may or may not be a part of this discussion too. Yeah, definitely. I actually, yeah, I was thinking to come around to that point as well. So when we look at the asymmetry, right, men and women aren't the same. Allah says it in the Quran. They said that unta, like they're different. And so they're calibrated differently when it comes to attraction. They're also calibrated differently in their social embeddedness and who bears the cost either when it comes to the things that you can and can't do when you are pregnant, let's say, or remarrying or like all these sorts of issues. Now, that's not to give a blank check to people who kind of use this as sort of justification for why then more responsibility falls on women than it does on men. We, I think there, there's enough blame to go around, right? And I don't think that we need to fall into partisanship or mutually exclusive sorts of claims. Just, yeah, Allah said it perfectly in the Quran and that I and so it's a nor. Each side bears responsibility, right? It's like men have a responsibility and women have their responsibility. And instead of sitting back in the armchair and pointing, you know, it's like, well, they're not covering their responsibility and the other side's not taking care of their responsibility. Both have to just live up to the thing that they're actually supposed to do. Men need to do better when it comes to covering themselves, not trying to attract the female gaze, realizing the, all the sorts of harms that come from this sort of thing. And then, yeah, also females, they have to do those sorts of things when it comes to not turning the hijab into a joke, right? Let's just be honest. Like some of the stuff that passes as quote unquote hijabi model, which is a complete sort of contradiction in terms, right? It's like somebody who who is making a mockery of this sacred sort of duty and this this sacred practice. So there's there's enough responsibility to go around. Unfortunately, the gender wars and stuff like that make each side sort of just like trying to score points against the other. Everybody just needs to take responsibility for their own side and focus on what they can be doing. Imam Tom, let me um, ask you a question. You talk about sacred duties and sacred responsibilities. There is sometimes a, a misconception some people have, and uh, they'll bring up something, especially some brothers you'll talk to about, you know, to be mindful of aura and be careful about, you know, whether it's those uh, gym selfies or the shirtless pics or the arms, and they'll talk about Hajj and Umrah, and they'll talk about when people are in this, which is a pillar of worship, and out there and doing tawaf or they're in Hajar Umrah, their stomachs are showing, their chests are showing. It's and, and they'll take it kind of in a superficial way. And I've I've heard people talk about this. And frankly, not to digress from this point, but it reminds me of uh, and obviously this is a very fringe type of thought, but the there are some groups of of progressives and feminists who push for the idea of praying together, a gender mixed congregation or letting sisters lead congregation. And they'll say the same thing that, oh, well, when you go to Mecca, uh, men and women are praying in the in the holy mosque and you'll have women in front of men and men in front of women. And 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 I'm not talking about here what's right or wrong. I'm talking about this is an observation they'll share. How would you respond to something like this, which is unfortunately something that that people will commonly say that, hey, when when I'm at Hajj or Umrah, you know, I'm showing my chest, I'm showing my stomach. What's a big deal outside? How, how would you reply to that? Yeah, def I mean, that's fairly easy. I think that exceptions don't prove rules. That's that's it. I mean, like every single rule that exists, literally, you can find an exception to it. And if 
rules were invalidated by the exceptions to it, then we would have no rules. This is actually a big tactic that people in the legalization movement for like legalization of drugs or, or prostitution or stuff like that uh, have always used this tack and it is fairly illogical or at least logically misleading, right? The fact that there are, yeah, I mean, we'll just leave it there for, for now to, to pass on to the idea that what is the, and are those two situations even analogous, right? It's like, if I am in Mecca in Ihram, my stomach should not be <laughs> visible. I should cover my, I should wear my izar properly so that my stomach is not showing. But if I'm in a state, what's the purpose of Ihram? Like the purpose of ihram is showing humility. It's it's being in that same sort of sense that we said before, like removal of clothing is humility, right? It's showing humility to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's showing your sort of poverty, right? It's almost like a public display of your, your own poverty. And so this is something that, is this the default state that we're supposed to be in? First of all, first question, no, it's a very special state that's limited to a special certain amount of time for a reason. And second, is that the spirit with which we are now parading around and taking gym selfies and things like that? Like that is not at all what's going on. Uh, sorry, pardon me here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it even sounds kind of kind of uh, disingenuous to compare your your Hajj situation or or the the ahram you're wearing in Hajj to your gym selfie. Uh, Imam Tam, move, moving along, I wanted to ask you, especially for those of us who have lived and traveled outside the U.S. and Canada, outside the West, or our listeners who are in other countries. Uh, and Muslim Matters, of course, has podcast listeners all over the world. You have concepts even today of beaches that or, or parks or bodies of water, lakes, where there will be family uh, areas or family hours, family days, and then there will be a more public beach. And where I'm going with this is I've, I saw this even growing up where you'll have Muslim families that'll be really, really strict on their daughters or the sisters, and they'll be really kind of lax with their boys or the men when it comes to going to a beach or going to a party or going to some event, a carnival. How would you advise about, you're talking here to young Muslim brothers, sisters as well, but specifically here for a minute, if we can focus on young Muslim men, brothers who go to beaches which are not separated by family days or family times, but we're talking about places where people are almost pretty unclothed, almost naked in some situations, completely mixed gatherings. And this is not even to mention the alcohol and, and drugs and other situations that may be prevalent. And you have essentially, there's a real lack of, of haya. And I'm not even just going from the safety elements. You know, as a father of teenagers, I would have many concerns just around safety, but even from an Islamic point of view, how, how would you advise about that? I, I get it. Everyone loves going to the beach. Everyone loves being around the water. I certainly love being around the water and at the beach. But there are you know, certain environments which may not be the healthiest, especially for Muslim youth. How, how would you realistically advise around that? Yeah, no, definitely. That's a huge problem. And um, you touch on something that's very important and the important counterbalance to the asymmetry of male and female sort of attraction and uh, how it's dealt with asymmetrically in the Quran and the Sunnah. But that should not be conflated with the asymmetry that we see culturally that Muslims practice, because really all of the burden to be modest is thrown on the females and absolutely none of it gets passed around to the males. I'll give you just a quick story. You know, I was able to visit Malaysia for the first time this winter in January. My wife's father is, is from there and lives there. And we went to like, seriously, you know, tropical island, like all this sort of stuff. One time we went to, and this is a Muslim country, right? A Muslim majority country. And we were at a beach at one point and I was kind of already uncomfortable with how many kind of European tourists were there. And obviously they're dressed very, very differently from the Muslim families that were there. And somebody, one of the women needs to, I guess, change clothes or whatever. And with, why kid you not, without even putting a towel up, she literally takes off the bottom half of her swimsuit so that she is completely naked from the waist down and then puts on something over top of it, like with absolutely no shame in front of anybody else. And at that moment, like I was so upset because I'm very strict when it comes to my family and what we're exposed to, what the kids are exposed to. And I swore by Allah right there, like I'm never coming back to this beach unless it's after Fajr. Never. And even when it comes to the, like, 
I had known that in the United States for a long time. I haven't been to a beach in the United States in forever. And if I do go, it's just after Fedger or off season, right? I'll go in like March or something like that for exactly this reason. It's like the beach is like a really, really horrible environment where work is getting done to, to sort of make certain things seem very normal to you. Listen, the biggest hoax, maybe one of the biggest hoaxes of the last 100, 150 years is the swimsuit. Okay, the, the bikini especially. If you want to see the power of marketing, how could big corporations and companies convince people that underwear are appropriate to wear as long as you're on the beach, as long as you're about to get wet, right? If somebody were to walk around and go into a store in their underwear, they'd be kicked out. They would be refused service. You wouldn't be allowed to buy anything. But somehow, if we change the material, okay, it's a little bit nylon-y instead of, instead of whatever underwear is, and you do it at the beach, it's acceptable. That is the biggest scam run by marketing. It shows the power of these sort of companies and their, their marketing departments and things like that. So this is a, a place where all the stuff becomes seen as normal. All right. Wearing underwear in public is not normal and it never should be considered normal. And so going to the beach and exposing your young men to this is unfortunately a big part of it. And so I would definitely discourage any Muslim family with kids from going to the beach, especially if you're in a non-Muslim country in peak hours, right? I would go early morning, evening, again, off season. And I think that this is, uh, this is low hanging fruit. This is something that should be easy and obvious to anybody. And I really can't honestly think up much of a justification for why anybody would be at the beach peak season, peak time of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Imam Tom, if we can shift gears here for a second, and I wanted to ask you, I have several topics that I'm wondering if we could kind of tack or, or address a little bit of a, of a, of a rapid response way. And I, and, and this is not meant to conflate issues. You'll see that some of these maybe have more to do with aura or, or libas clothing, and some may more with general haya, and some may have to do with concerns around imitation of the other gender. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a few topics. And if we, just for the for the interest of time, uh, maybe we don't go too deep into them, but I'll, I want to raise some for you. Uh, and this is not just within a Western context, but advice to Muslim men in general. Uh, nowadays, it's become popular, the first topic, having a man purse or a man bag, which I guess serves kind of like for people who are not familiar, you can wear it around your shoulder and whether you have your phone or your wallet or other things. What is your opinion on these? It's not an issue if it's culturally acceptable. A lot of our brothers from Eastern Europe, this is a common thing. People, I've met Bosnian students in Medina that that was just a part of their culture. It wasn't considered something particular to women. But if you are in an area where it is understood as particular to women, then it's something that you should should avoid, okay? And that, that goes for clothing too. So in the United States, if you're wearing a man purse, have my doubts. So you should, if I was in the United States, I would avoid it. Okay. Uh, what about earrings and nose rings? And including for any sort of uh, cultures where this may be common for men. That's very good. This is a particular question that I have doubts about. And so I'm just going to put that there up front. Comes to the general rule of the idea of imitating the opposite sex. Like there are some things that are fixed and there are some things that are culturally determined. Okay. So there are certain cultures where wearing earrings is not an indication of femininity, right? Anybody who was chilling in the US in the 80s, there's lots of guys that wear earrings. My dad wears earrings, right? It's like this is something that's not considered an effeminate practice. Within a culture where that's not considered effeminate practice, it might be okay. Right, if it meets the other guidelines of sort of it's not made of gold and etc. These sorts of things, uh, but that's something that I am not a hundred percent confident of myself. No, I really appreciate this, and some of this stuff, as you said, we're all getting there together. Whether it's us as listeners or you uh, from the student of knowledge and ulama community, I appreciate you being so candid. Let's move to another one: temporary tattoos, things like henna, things like uh, again, these are not permanent. What is your advice on that for for men? I would say culturally where we're at right now, henna is definitely understood when it comes to the, like the tattoo aspect, not in the beard or the hair or anything like that, is definitely a marker of femininity. And it's hard to construe it as something that is not a mark of femininity. So I would definitely discourage that. And I would consider that as an imitation of the opposite sex. Okay. Very common. And I don't think anyone would object to uh, obviously brothers having long hair, but what about hair dye, highlights, having different type of colors in the hair for men? I mean, that's a, again, not a rapid fire, not getting too into the weeds, but I think that's a, a larger problem of sort of that person's sense of value and self-worth and body image. 
Like, I don't think that anybody who's truly happy with all, with all, with what Allah gave them would change their hair color. That's my assumption. I could be wrong, but that's my assumption. So I would say that that person shouldn't do it, but on theological grounds. As for the fit grounds, then I'm not entirely sure about that either. Okay, here's one. I read the other day that some of the younger athletes are doing this nowadays, professional athletes. What about nail polish for men? And I'm not talking about clear nail polish or something that would be like some clear coat. I'm talking about actually... And it doesn't matter, cleared or not, colored nail polish, nail polish for men. Yeah, that's something actually that I've observed as being more common in on college campuses as well. This is still something that is, I think, in the culture, still indicative of femininity or LGBTQ culture. And so it, I think it should definitely be avoided. Okay. Imam, what about skinny jeans? I mean, who wants to wear skinny jeans? Aslan, right? Like, I don't understand this whole thing with skinny jeans. I mean, I'll, I'll be frank, you know, like I can't even... Yeah, they don't look comfortable at all. Find. I can't even find. Man, this is funny. Okay, so way back in the day before I went to Medina, you know, we were sitting in an iftar in the masjid, and um, there was one guy that was wearing pants that were too tight, and he was very uncomfortable, and he was having a hard time sitting. So we're all sitting on the floor. And then he he said something about, it's like, he's not used to sitting this way. And then this perfect, perfect, like, off-the-boat brother, just like, or thick accent, maybe your pants are too tight. And we just all laughed. So yeah, I mean, I don't. There is no purpose or utility to skinny jeans. Is I mean, I'm not a I'm not a fashion critic, but if I was one, then that would be my top fender. I wish that I could find jeans that were like they were in the '90s, or they're baggy enough to sort of like move around in. I don't understand the idea behind it. Uh, maybe that makes me square or not cool. Like I don't care. I would definitely err on the side of. It's the same thing with Levi's in general, right? It's like you don't want things that are form fitting. Anything that's form-fitting is defeating the purpose of clothes. The purpose of clothes is to hide and conceal the body underneath of it, right? And so if I'm having something that's shrink-wrapped on me that I have to like you know, sew myself into, then that's something that is completely defeating the purpose of clothing in the, fir- in the first place. Imam, one more, and this is the last one on, on these rapid response ones. I, I'm not sure if this is a class or cultural issue, but what about men going for facials or even manicures or stuff like that? What is, what is your advice on that? Yeah, I mean, I'll have to say, I mean, I'm a pretty working class guy, and that's all foreign to me. I've never even heard of a guy getting a facial or a manicure. So it might be my sort of blue collar bias that is finds that completely reprehensible. I don't know if in very ups, sort of upper class urban environments, if that is something that is done. Is it a marker of femininity? I would assume it was. I would definitely sort of avoid that, and Allah knows best. All right, now I'm going to jump in, and I know as I said, that was the last of his rapid-fire ones, but I got a couple more, and these are related to social media specifically because <laughs> that's always you know, the big one. So are bros allowed to follow women online? Because this is a huge one where it's just like selfie accounts or even it could be somebody is posting inspirational quotes or advice or whatever but every other picture is essentially this influencer selfie and so like what's the deal with that like can they say like i'm just following for the written content i think that's a useful distinction between maybe there's like a proportion of selfies versus actual content if the content is the person then don't follow if the content is islam guidance then okay follow with conditions and reservations right are you harding everything? Are you up in the comments? We know what goes on, right? There's some creepy guys out there that are like every single thing. It's like, like I mean, it's like, oh, this is amazing, whatever. So uh, yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, okay. Because there's some like female shuyukh and stuff like that that I follow, right? And other people that I network with, right? Or especially authors, like if people are authors of kids books or like they're involved in like Islamic school and curriculum and stuff like that, but they don't have selfies, you know what I mean? And so- yeah, exactly. So it's like anybody who's liking a selfie of another female, you should check yourself right away. Like I was like, just completely honestly, it's like, just don't like, I would judge people to be honest with you. If I go through and somebody, maybe if it's like a person in a group and they're at a Dawa conference or something like that, okay, I can make an excuse for you. But it's like, if someone is posting a selfie of just themselves and it's like, you're hearting it. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, I consider it a red flag either way, honestly. Like if it's a woman just like harding a guy's soul selfies or if it's a guy who's like constantly harding and following accounts that are, to be honest, again, very shallow. Um, and the and the quote-unquote inspirational 
content is very generic anyway. So like roomy quotes, because you know, those are popular. But the next one is TikTok dances. Can Muslim guys take part in TikTok dance trends? I mean, I think that I don't think that it's appropriate, to be honest. If I think hard enough, I might be able to think of a scenario or two in which it might be like not the worst thing in the world. But like, yeah, I mean, just the the things that almost always accompany these. Here's the thing that people don't realize. When you put yourself online like that, the internet doesn't forget. You're there forever. And if you're, if the, it comes back to content. If the content is yourself, you really need to check yourself. If the content is something that is like maybe an intellectual take or something that you heard from the other mat or something like that, then that's different. But if you're literally the content, what's the reason that people are liking it? If the reason that people are liking it is because you're dancing around and moving your body, then you've commodified yourself. And that, and that is inherently problematic. I find too that a lot of times people don't make the connection between the okay well number one is the music element too right like I follow the opinion music's haram and I know that like five people are left who hold that opinion (laughs) alhamdulillah (laughs) but yeah like for me that's a big one uh, especially given that oftentimes the lyrics are quite vulgar to begin with and I would tie that into haya very strongly because this exposure to the kinds of music and the lyrics that are out there are actively tied to a lack of haya to begin with. And so when you have brothers are jumping in on these trends and they're, I mean, it's bad for everybody. Absolutely. Like I absolutely cannot stand it. Like seeing Muslim women do TikTok dances and things like that also, you know, really grinds my gears and it's it's really sad in a lot of ways. And then I don't know if we can tie this to haya per se, but even a sense of like dignity and respect. Like, you know, when we think about, what aura should a Muslim man have in general, especially conducting himself in general and having a sense of heba for oneself, having a sense of just overall dignity like that doesn't seem to be a concept that really exists anymore. No, you're 100% right. And that's exactly why it's like I try to take it back to the theological dimension. Why would somebody do that? Like that's the, That's the big question. Why would somebody put themselves up dance video for TikTok? What are they trying to accomplish? Either they're trying to fit in or they're trying to attract other people or they're trying to get likes. You can't find a good a good intention, in my opinion, right? It's like, so if somebody is doing this thing, to me, it's a scream for help. It's a scream of emptiness. And this thing is something that they're doing to fill some sort of void that they have, right? It's like your sense of self-worth, and this is the big problem with social media in general, is that your, self of, your sense of self-worth is coming from other people's likes. And so now it's put you in a formula where you're doing what you think is going to get approval from other people in order to have a sense of self-worth, right? So how many like layers of theological problems is that? Like that's a ton. So it it comes back to what I mentioned earlier about us taking the society that we're given and changing it for the better. This is not changing anything. This is just you like sort of slavishly accepting what society is telling you that your worth should come from or could come from, that everybody's doing it, that this is like trending or whatever. We need to be trendsetting in the good way, not just gobbling up sort of what everybody else is doing and then just mimicking. We're aping. We're no better than chimps if, if this is what we're going to do. And one more on the social media thing, and this is related to both Muslim men and Muslim women and like collective haya, I guess is the best way to put it, and tied as well to the concept of ghayra, where you see a lot of Muslim couples doing these TikTok trends, whether it's dances or little comedy skits. And I know a lot of people will be like, oh, well, we're showing that Muslim couples are Muslim marriages aren't just oppressive. They're, you know, loving and they have a sense of humor, this, that and the other. But something really just grates on me when I see them, because like I can understand the the arguments for it. But because of the lack of again, like that dignity and respect and a little bit of privacy issues, maybe like. I don't understand how Muslim husbands are okay with this. No, it's the same thing. They're they're fishing for approval. No, definitely they're fishing for approval. If you 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 said it just with with how you you framed it, people are trying to respond to a certain assumption about Muslim couples that they think is problematic. So they've already internalized that judgment. They already think that it's problematic to be private. It's problematic to be whatever. It's like we're literally just letting ourselves be completely mentally colonized by these sorts of ideas uh, about what a relationship should be, what a what happiness should look like, right? And then we're just 
guzzling it by the bottle and we're just throwing it back up there on social media and we're getting likes and approval just within their silly identity politics calculus where, okay, now look for them, it's further confirmation that this way of running the world and valuing the world is correct. It's like, look, even Muslims are doing it, right? Even Pakistanis and the Arabs and like whatever are doing it. So it must be right. This Western way of commodifying the self, of saying that the only way to sort of express your happiness is publicly out in front of everybody. And, oh, well, we're not the boring Muslim couples that you've, you know, you're afraid exist somewhere in the world that aren't open to your privy, right? No, actually, we're, we're different than that. We're, it's the same sort of, can I use the word Uncle Tomming? Like it's the same sort of Uncle Tomming that just keeps on coming back again and again and again in, in a different sort of form. So that shows that there's just no self-confidence. There's no sense of worth that's derived from, you know, their relationship with Allah. It's just emptiness. And if you have emptiness inside, you don't have a sense of self-worth that's grounded in your devotional relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you're going to get sucked into every single trend that comes down the pipeline. And you'll find a way to justify it. Of course, everybody has a justification. Yeah, I think that really sums it up for the social media stuff. Erzaza, I want to leave it to you to wrap up with the parenting take on this, actually. Yeah, no, sure. Imam Tom, if we can for a moment maybe wear a little bit of a different hat where we're you know, looking at, at some of these issues more as fathers and, and practically speaking, one of the realities for many, I think, historical and cultural reasons is that I think Muslim, I think we can all say Muslim communities generally will focus on, on, on female modesty more than male modesty, just in terms of reminders and, and general talks. And obviously there's different legal requirements and issues, you know, whether it's uh, hijab or other, there, there are sensible reasons for that. But I wanted to ask if you were talking to your son today or your nephew or, or a young brother or, the, or our listeners who are listening, what would you say are the most important traits of Haya for a young Muslim boy or Muslim man, uh, even a pre-teenager, even someone who's coming up? We know that the world is a very different place today. And there's just, I a lot of times really feel for the youth because there's, I'm just like, man, there's so many distractions and situations. I, I don't know if I would have handled them if I, if I was growing up in this time, specifically along the lines of Haya and, and modesty. What is advice you would give to young brothers? I think the the biggest, most basic advice I would give is live your life relating vertically, not horizontally. Okay. And that has to do with your relationship with Allah has to be stronger than your relationship to anything else in this creation, whether it's your friends, whether it's your social media accounts, whether it's whatever. That is the whole attitude shift, paradigm shift or whatever, that's going to take care of a lot of issues downstream, right? We live in a peer-oriented society that set up social media to succeed. We live in a society where people's, people are obsessed with fitting in. And the quickest way to nip that in the bud is to relate vertically, right? To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what I'm talking about. More and more robustly than you relate horizontally. Other than that, it has to do with, you know, I think there's been some nice improvements when it comes to developing the sense of chivalry, right? I think that there's a, there's some murmurs here and there from different corners of the Muslim community in North America where chivalry is kind of making a comeback. Unfortunately, I think they, they waited too long until like Red Pill came, like in order to kind of make that move. But okay, alhamdulillah, we're here. And so people are now exploring Futuwa, right? There's the book on a Muslim Futuwa, and there's all these sorts of now conferences and seminars about Muslim masculinity and stuff like that, that's a step in the right direction. We need to give a sense, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Ja'ilun fil Ardi, Khalifa, right? This job description that we're supposed to have as a Khalifa, somebody who takes care of other things. Okay. If that's your primary way of understanding yourself and experiencing the world, the social media stuff doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? It's like if I'm a protector of creation, I'm a protector of the Muslims, I'm a protector of my my sisters and my daughters and everybody else around me. Does a protector do the sorts of things that people are doing when it comes to social media and stuff like that? No, it's a completely different idea about who the, who the human being is. So I think nurturing my oldest son's 12. So, you know, we have these conversations like nurturing this idea of relating vertically and you're a protector. And uh, I think that that takes care of a lot of the issues downstream. Imam Tom, do you th there is sometimes a stereotype that it's harder for men to maintain their modesty than it is for women. Do you think there's something to this? Do you think it's baseless? Yeah, that doesn't that literally doesn't make sense to me. How is it harder for men? I agree. It just it's a, again just just seeing that with with sometimes I, I, 
it, even anecdotal, and I don't have data to back this up, but it's growing up around a lot of South Asian Muslim and Arab families. Uh, a lot of times I feel like there was just a strong, strong focus on the daughters and sisters, and, and sometimes there was more lack. I know certainly in, in our generation, uh, dads I know, we're, we're trying to balance that out because you don't want to ignore your son's concept of modesty and, and, and only make it about the daughter. Imam Tam, one other item is we know the Hadith. A rough translation that the Prophet was described as being more shy from his haya than a veiled virgin girl. And there, while many of his companions were fierce warriors when they needed to be, they were known for their modesty and their character. I wanted to ask you somewhere, whether this is post-colonial, whether this is the influence of other cultures, there does seem to be where modesty is a concept for men kind of went away, uh, even amongst Muslims. I'm, I'm not saying all Muslims, certainly, but it, it's essentially become something, again, we focus more on our daughters and women, which rightfully so. We should focus on it for daughters and sisters and women. But essentially, it all, almost kind of became like, it's not manly to focus on modesty or haya for men. And I, I'm not saying that obviously our religion says that, but it seems like in practice. Yeah, there's definitely parts that are responsible, different vectors that are responsible for that have to do with. Could you point to something about maybe why that's happened or or maybe not why it's happened, but how, how we can, cur- obviously maybe this happened over a hundred years or over generations. How could we reverse the tide? Oh, definitely. Yeah. European colonialism. I mean, European colonialism is right there for changing how we interact with gender and our idea about what genders are. Part of that, the you know inculcation of sort of Victorian morality and Victorian ideals of gender and, and femininity, I think, are a big thing. And so, you know, we're sort of stuck in this kind of ping pong, the pendulum swinging back and forth between extremes now. Got the majority society who has revolted against the Victorian sort of gender norms. And that's feminism and, and all these sorts of developments. And then you've got the reaction to the reaction, with his, which is red pill. And I think it comes in with the intergenerational component that you brought to our attention when it comes to how most of us were raised. I think that one of the benefits of millennials onward, Gen Z and all this other stuff, is that you have the opportunity to change it. You have the opportunity to flip the script. You have the opportunity to make an intergenerational intervention to set your descendants on a better path, to give them something that you didn't have. And so to not just respond and react to the sort of excess of the day, but to transcend it. That's the big thing, to trans- transcend it. And how are you going to transcend the back and forth is by trying to get back to what Islam actually says and not sort of these gender wars or culture wars or things like that. No, Imam, I really appreciate that. Before uh, my colleague, Sister Zainab, comes back in to kind of close us out, I did want to ask you if... Uh, these were amazing topics today, and I, I certainly hope we have a chance to talk to you in the future and, and in the near future, hopefully. Just before I hand it over, do you have general resources on these sort of topics of uh, whether aura or modesty or um, uh, these uh, gender interactions or any project that you yourself are working on or publishing that you'd like to share with our listeners? I mean, uh, two books that I've benefited from, uh, Dr. Hatun al-Hajj's book on sort of gender mixing and gender gender interactions, and then actually the, the Muslim Matters publication on, on sex matters. Now, they don't cover necessarily every single thing um, that we're talking about today. I really want to to read the, the book on Futuwa that recently came out. I haven't gotten around to it today, but I've heard very reliable people give very, very good reviews of it. And uh, yeah. And I, I think there you're talking about a Sheikh uh, Brother Daud Walid's book. Yes, exactly. Daud Walid's, yeah, exactly. Text and those sorts of things, right? So uh, I think that's a, a good way to start. And Alana's best. Jazakallah khair, Imam Tom. This was such an excellent discussion, as always. And I really appreciated the way that you constantly brought it back to the relationship with Allah, because that's what's supposed to underscore everything we do, anyways. The fiqh is nothing without that connection to Allah and that relationship to Allah. And I really appreciated as well the structuring of the social media discussion in terms of questioning those premises. I think that's really important because social media is so pervasive. It has impacted everyone, men and women alike, to the extent that everybody just kind of takes it for granted and at face value and engages with it following these trends without doing that critical thinking that you mentioned that is so, so important. And I think it's valid to say that you know after this entire detailed discussion and episode one as well which i highly recommend our listeners uh go back and listen to would you say that 
masculine haya is a core part of masculinity in Islam? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's no doubt. I think not even just in Islam. It's, it's a core part of your relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think that somebody who's balanced and has like the proper sort of internal orientation and knows their place in the world, right? Knows their actually the, their role in creation. That's like the whole idea of being a khalifa and stuff like that. That haya is right there, right? Dignity is right there. It's all right there. So I would definitely say that it's it's core. I think that pretty much wraps up then. That's the perfect conclusion to this uh, to this episode. So Jazakallah Khair again for joining us today, Imam Tom and Brother Itaza. I really loved the you know the back and forth and the you know the personal insights because you guys are both fathers as well of boys, and that's very important for us to hear. So Barakallahu Fikum for joining us today, for sharing your wisdoms and your experiences. And to our listeners, don't forget to share your own thoughts, your comments, your questions uh, in the comments below. And stay tuned for the next episode of the Muslim Matters Podcast. Subscribe if you haven't already. And let us know what you thought. Jazakallah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hey, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.